is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Greetings and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Wove, and here's what's coming up. The rebel group attacked uh, positions inside the Congo uh, in two positions, actually, and overran them. According to the reports, we are getting that the firepower overwhelmed with the government forces. That was Brigadier General Felix Kuleage, a Uganda Army spokesperson on the attacks on military outposts that led to 10,000 Congolese to flee into Uganda. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Gunmen believed to be bandits bombed a major rail track in northwest Nigeria last night, then surrounded it while shooting sporadically. At least seven of more than 900 passengers were reported to be killed and others were missing and possibly kidnapped. From Abuja, Nigeria, reporter Monaki Chucks has more. The train was traveling from Abuja to Kaduna when it was attacked between the Katari and Rijana stations. The managing director of the Nigeria Railway Corporation, Fidet Ohiria, confirmed the attack, which came 48 hours after the Kaduna airport was attacked in the latest brazen violence in the state. It's unfortunate and it's a very bad news and sad news to, to all of us. The last train that departed Abuja around 6 was attacked and we could not confirm that immediately because uh, the communication right there is uh, not uh, very good. However, we were able to talk to our driver, who was able to hide somewhere, and he confirmed that the train was under attack. The same train service was attacked by terrorists five months ago. The government promised then that security would accompany each train to avoid a recurrence. Ohira noted that the security personnel were on the ground when the attack happened yesterday. The security people were there and they were able to repel according to what I heard from them. See, nobody prayed for such a thing to happen, but we always walk towards uh, that. We have military, we have patrol, and unfortunately, uh, this happened. Passengers were evacuated by security forces the Kaduna State Emergency Management Agency, and Nigeria Red Cross. Abuja Kaduna train operations have been suspended, according to a statement from the NRC on Twitter. For VOA News, Munachi Chooks from Abuja, Nigeria. The railway attack is the latest incident to undercut public confidence and security, which has become a political hot after mass killings from schools, the airport attack, and other incidents. David Awo-Rao is a professor of international relations and strategic studies and head of Department of History and Strategic Studies at the University of Lagos. He told reporter Mike Mbonye the incident is a sign of degeneration in Nigeria's security situation. It is very, very concerning. Uh, it means that, um, you know, there is escalation in violence and uh, there is degeneration in the security situation. Recall that uh, we're going by train from Kaduna to uh, Bucha and back became the preferred uh, choice of people because the roads became unsafe. Hardly anybody could uh, in attempt to go by road from Kaduna to uh, Abuja and back because of kidnapping, kidnappings, killings, and, and all. Now, for this uh, preferred uh, choice of people, which was considered safer and all that, 
to now become a subject of attack uh, makes it very, very concerning. It means that uh, there is degeneration in the security situation. It means that uh, the capacity of the authorities to uh, deal with it is, is uh, inadequate. It also means that uh, more and more people are finding violence and kidnapping very lucrative, which has led to the expansion. So overall, it is very concerning. In this instance, and with the incident of uh, yesterday, what do you think should be done by the government and all concerned to check the trend? Because uh, I think it's the first time Nigerians have experienced this kind of attack. Uh, yes, what that means is that um, the security of uh, the rail line will need to be beefed up. They, they, it is assumed that nobody will want to come or to, the, or to the rail line or to the train to try to uh, cause harm. But from what has happened yesterday now, it has become very clear that the, the trains are not as safe as was assumed. Recall also that a couple of months ago, these terrorists attempted to remove some of the uh, rails uh, you know, the railings on the ground so that uh, the, the, the train would derail. But that was quickly attended to, and uh, the trains began to move again before the, the attack of yesterday. What that means is that the assumption that uh, travel by, 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 by uh, train and that the rail lines are safe is an assumption that uh, doesn't, doesn't have a sound foundation. So, they will, you know, unfortunately, security will have to be deployed along the stretch of uh, the rail line to ensure that uh, the kind of attack that happened yesterday will not repeat itself. Professor Warawo, what's your take on the security situation in Nigeria today? Um, Nigeria is going through a very disturbing phase in its history. Societies are not structured to expect this level of violence at the same time. Uh, the one those people call multipolar. But at every level, uh, society is not is not structured to society is structured to expect that where well, you have the bad guys here and there once in a while. But this large number, this intensity, makes it very concerning. The other day it was reported that 500 people, about 500 people on motorcycle, invaded the tomato uh, factory, killed people, disrupted the place, and the place is shut down now. Societies are not structured to expect this scale of violence, this intensity of violence, this extent of violence at the same time. And what that means is that so much resources will now have to be deployed to securing areas that usually you assume that will be safe. But of course, that was, that's what has to be done. If the rail lines will be safe and we'll be able to travel, we using the trains. That was David Awarao, Professor of International Relations and Strategic Studies at the University of Lagos, speaking with reporter Mike Mbonye. As Western sanctions on Russia shrink the global oil supply, the U.S. ambassador to Libya unveiled possible U.S. initiatives related to the North African country's oil fields, currently blocked for political reasons. Richard Norland said it's the worst time to block the production, adding that Libyans could have benefited from the high prices and global markets which need oil. Wolfgang Putzai, former Austrian military attaché, Libya explains to VOA senior analyst Mohamed Alshinawi what kind of initiatives the U.S. ambassador is talking about. Actually, Norland and UN Special Advisor Stephanie Williams have called for ensuring the political independence of Libya's key economic and financial institutions, including the National Oil Corporation, the Central Bank of Libya, and the Libyan Investment Authority. They have demanded that those must not be used to benefit one or the other party in the current conflict. Norland is, of course, fully aware that these three institutions give access to Libya's financial resources and thus have a crucial role in the current power struggle. This means if 
political independence as such is just given. It's, you are supporting whoever is in power. As this person has access to the funds of CBL, Norland proposed in this initiative to use oil revenues only on salaries and subsidies for, to finance oil production and for some key imported goods like food and medicine. There should be a mechanism to ensure full transparency and accountability. And this proposed initiative would take away from the government of national unity, Prime Minister Tabeba, his key weapon in the current power struggle, namely the ability to distribute money to his supporters and his followers. So this initiative, if it really comes into existence, would somehow flatten the playground between Tabeba and his opponent, House of Representatives-backed Prime Minister Bashaga. Norland said Russia's unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine is a reflection on a massive scale of the destabilizing role Russian Wagner Group mercenaries have played in Libya and the Sahel region, adding that the U.S. was aware of reports that the mercenaries were being transferred from Libya to Ukraine to fight for Russia, as well as reports of Moscow's attempts to recruit foreign fighters against Kiev. How credible are such reports about sending mercenaries from the Middle East to fight with Russia? It is correct that Wagner has redeployed a few hundred infantry from Libya to Ukraine. But keeping the scale of the war in Ukraine in mind, this figure is really insignificant. Russia has right now already deployed most of its best troops, the so-called Category A units, to Ukraine. Those units consist mainly of professional soldiers and longer-serving conscripts. They are equipped with the most modern and best military hardware which is available in Russia. After underestimating the Ukrainian resistance and quite a huge number of casualties, Russia needs many more troops to sustain the war and to win it. More precisely, what the Russians really need is not a couple of hundred mercenaries. They need high numbers of highly trained infantry for fighting in urban areas in a high-intensity conflict. Those troops must be trained in combined arms warfare in cooperation with Russian air power and artillery support. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense reported recently that LNA Commander Haftar has agreed to send LNA troops to Ukraine to fight for Russia. These reports are not very credible because... This kind of warfare is not what the Libyans are trained for, so their use would be very, very limited. But according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which monitors the war in Syria, Russia has already drawn up a list of 40,000 Syrians to deploy to Ukraine to aid its invasion, and the Syrian 4th Armored Division have promised former soldiers a salary of $3,000 if they fight in Ukraine. What's your take on that? This makes much more sense for Russia. This is a different category of troops. The 4th Armored Division is one of the crack units, one of the elite units of the Assad regime. They are trained in combined arms warfare. They are experienced in cooperating with regular Russian forces. They are trained in cooperation with Russian special forces. They are well experienced in fighting in large cities like in Homs or Aleppo. Actually, those are the shock troops of the Assad regime. They are using equipment which is quite similar to Russian Category B forces equipment, which means it would be easy to train them on this. I would say this is bad news for Ukraine, especially because of the record of war crimes of the Syrian elite forces. That was Wolfgang Putzai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi. Up to 10,000 asylum seekers have crossed into Uganda from the Democratic Republic of Congo to flee the latest fighting between the DRC's armed forces and the M23 rebel group. Catherine Nambi reports from Kampala. 
The asylum seekers from Democratic Republic of Congo started arriving in Uganda on Sunday. This following a heavy exchange of fire between the DRC army and the M23 rebels around the DRC town of Ruchuri territory about three kilometers away from the Uganda DRC border. The refugees, including women and children, walked over six kilometers to safety with their mattresses, cooking utensils, animals and other property. The M23 reportedly captured three army barracks in Rusuri. Brigadier General Felix Kulaije is a Uganda Army spokesperson. He explains circumstances that led to the new influx of asylum seekers. The rebel group attacked uh, positions inside the Congo uh, in two positions actually and overran them. According to the reports we are getting that the firepower overwhelmed the government forces. As a result of a flared up fighting, almost 10,000 people by last evening had fled into Uganda. The refugees have been received of course and given the first assistance that can be afforded. This morning, I'm told, they want to go back. Uh, so fast, we are saying wait, let's monitor and see. A center of learning in Uganda, Bunagana Primary School, has been closed to studies to accommodate the huge number of asylum seekers. Officials from UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, and Uganda's of the Prime Minister, or OPM, are already at the primary school to register the asylum seekers and offer the necessary humanitarian assistance. Peter Mugisha is the outgoing resident district commissioner of Uganda's Chisoro district where the refugees are currently settled. He says plans are underway to relocate them to refugee settlement areas, although some are hesitant. To go. The NHCR and the OPM, they are already around. We are telling them to take these people to the transit camp in, the transit camp in Nyakabande. But some of them are refusing to go to Nyakabande. They want to monitor the situation of their, of their country and they go back, like last time what they did. So when, they, when the situation normalizes, I think some of them will, will, will go back. But if it doesn't, then we are ready to receive the refugees. Mugisha, however, says... Authorities are afraid of a likely outbreak of hygiene-related diseases at the school where the refugees are now housed, as available sanitary facilities like toilets and water sources cannot match the number of asylum seekers. Where they, where they are seated, they must keep those, that place clean because if they, are, if they are not clean, then we are going to get the problem of hygiene because they are going to leave the, all the place, as you are seeing, so we shall be having a problem of cleaning uh, Banagana again. And even in Yakabanda. The new number of asylum seekers joins 350,000 DRC refugees said to be already living in Uganda, according to UNHCR statistics recorded at the end of February. The number of DRC refugees make up 26% of the total refugee population in Uganda, which is home to one of the world's largest number of asylum seekers. Security at the Uganda DRC border has been heightened, with soldiers of the Uganda People's Defense Forces patrolling the borders to ensure no infiltration of militants. Roadblocks have been erected to ensure all those using the borders are thoroughly screened. This is Catherine Nambi for VON News. In Kampala. A new report by Amnesty International says over the last year, governments and corporations put profits ahead of saving lives 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, the report also says many governments use coronavirus restrictions to deny citizens their basic rights. Tusokumalo looks at how countries in Southern Africa fared in the new study. Unveiling the report at a media briefing in Johannesburg on Monday, Amnesty International Secretary General Agnes Kalamardi described 2021 as a year of injustice, one where greed was promoted, while health care, education, basic needs and social and economic protection were denied to citizens. She said poor countries were on the receiving end as world countries hoarded COVID-19 vaccines. We need African leaders to be playing a role and to saying we have a leadership role to play in those big global crises. They're doing quite the opposite. To me, that is the biggest disappointment. We need them. We need them to be at the forefront of forcing the world to rethink the way we're going to work together as a global community. According to the report, the governments of several countries of Southern Africa committed human rights abuses. In Zimbabwe, authorities continued their crackdown on human rights defenders, journalists and political activists. Freedom of association and protests were often denied under the disguise of COVID-19 regulations. Thousands were left homeless after their homes were demolished by the government. Amnesty Internationalist Deputy Regional Director Muleya Mwananyanda told VOA that Zimbabwe even introduced a bill meant to curtail the advocacy work of non-governmental organizations. We are calling on the government to ensure that people have the right to associate, to assemble, but that is a tall order for a government that is so used to suppressing the rights of its uh, citizens and other people who have uh, different voices from what the government would like to hear. In Mozambique, an armed group known as Ashabab, government forces and private military committed war crimes and serious human rights abuses. In Cabo Delgado, where government security forces are fighting Al-Shabaab, citizens' rights to water, food, education and protection were violated. The war also exacerbated the abuse of women and girls. Eswatini is also featured in the report after the monarchy there launched a brutal crackdown on citizens teachers, unions, and anyone who dared to participate in pro-democracy protests that were calling for the monarchy system to be abolished. Shanila Mohammed, the executive director at Amnesty International in South Africa, told the media briefing that even Pretoria had its own share of abuses. About 5.3 million households did not have safe or, or reliable water. About 14.1 million people in South Africa did not have access to safe sanitation in 2021. Now, these are basic human rights. Amnesty International says its findings from the last year show that governments cannot be trusted. It's calling on global citizens, including non-governmental organizations, journalists, human rights groups and others, to stand together and demand respect of human rights of every citizen. Tuso Kumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg.
Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa today told investors in his country and neighboring Uganda to tap into the African continental free trade area to boost their bilateral commerce if they want to help Africa be resilient. He made the call while opening the second edition of the Zimbabwe Rwanda Trade Investment Conference in Harare. Eugene Uimana has more details. Companies from both the Republic of... Mnangagwa said he is relying on the private sector's collective willingness to change the bad record of low intra-Africa trade despite the enormous business opportunities and potential every country possesses. Intra-African trade and investment, which saw trade volumes growing in 2020 to US $120 billion, is a clear reflection of the vast trade and investment opportunities within our continent, Africa. In this context, companies from both the Republic of Rwanda and Zimbabwe must exploit the business prospects presented under the common market for Eastern Southern Africa and the, Africa, the African continental free trade area. The inaugural edition of the conference took place last year with five agreements signed to deepen and strengthen bilateral economic ties. Mnangagwa said continental partnerships and markets are the only way to put Africa on the rapidly growing economic global map more soundly and to make it resilient and united. These platforms provide a gateway for entering global value chains, a shared pathway towards an integrated Africa, as well as the realization of the Africa we all want. That's the slogan of the continent's Agenda 2063. William Azma a retired diplomat who served as Ghana's ambassador to Ethiopia and in the African Union, told VOA that bilateral, regional and continental trade ties is the only way the continent can successfully exploit its abundant natural resources in a manner that improves the lives of Africans. Um, um, Africa is a continent that is blessed, um, and, uh, but because of some accidents of history, uh, we have not been able to tap those blessings. There's been a, a, a distraction and a diversion and an aberration in our natural historical development. Um, there is more focus to sharpen our engagement and to work more towards the dreams of our founding fathers, which is to integrate our economies. The theme of the three-day conference is Explore, Invest and Export. Ejen Uimana for VOA News, Chigari, Rwanda. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Kobe in Washington, D.C. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. 
Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturday, Sundays, 1500 and 2000 UTC. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voa or on Twitter at voa. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on the voice.